Bocas del Toro, Panama. A secluded seaside hideaway. Scott Makeda has no idea that his tropical haven is about to become his personal hell. He literally said, I have the power of Satan. A serial killer pretending to be a therapist. Holbert rents a room and that's where he set up his business as a fake shrink. Accusations of a gringo mafia. Gun running, drugs. A slaughtered family. And then he goes back and he plants another bullet. A killer on tape. Hey man, I'm guilty. Everybody knows I'm a monster. The law of the jungle is simple. Survive. From Treefort Media and Village Roadshow Entertainment Group, this is Natural Selection, Scott versus Wild Bill. I'm your host, Candace DeLong. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Well, Dominic, I will tell you, it has been a delight. I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say, for our podcast, you are definitely in the top five Venom experts we've had on this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. Very, very not impressive. Not a bad actor either. You know, not, not bad. a bad actor either. Not bad. I hope he catches a break sometime soon, you know? <laughs> Okay, Jordan, listen, I, um, I do want to talk about something I, I uh, put on Twitter. But before we do that, we started talking about haircuts because uh, even though people can't see us, you can see me and because we, we have this video hookup here and, and my hair is shorter. And we were talking about barbers and you were asking, you know, how long was your hair ever? It was long enough that my mother drove my mother crazy. But the interesting thing is, I think there's something with guys, or maybe it's just me. We don't like to change barbers. You know, we've got somebody that cuts our hair. We like to just stay with them. It takes like some kind of apocalypse for for people to change. I don't know if the same is true for women, but for guys, I find like you stick with your barber, even if, if you're getting a lousy haircut. What do you think? <laughs> well, well, I don't know if I agree with that completely. I think I definitely have a monogamy for my barber, I'm, but I'm also somebody who will quickly cheat on my barber if the price is right. If I get oh. a bad haircut, if, yeah, let me tell you, if I, I, I left a barber recently, there was, I was at a place that I'd been to for a long time and they jacked up the prices to what I thought was an inordinate amount for a haircut. And so I jumped ship to another well-recommended barber. How much do you pay for your haircut, Governor Casey? I'm not going to reveal that because the last reveal time... A this, is what, no. this is what no, a podcast is No, I'm not revealing for. it. No, no because Governor, I'll tell you why. Is, I'm not revealing no, it. No, I, there's Governor, some things that are privileged. What I pay is, for a haircut, $12. How do you like that? You pay $12 for a haircut? No, I don't. I'm just not telling you the truth. So we're you not going to discuss it. off. Yeah. Ripped <laughs> off, Governor. Yeah, that's probably Governor, true. Okay, this is... No, I want to pull this back even larger. Okay. So, um, imagine our audience. I love our audience. All yeah. seven of them, they're the nicest people in the yeah, world. Yeah, they are. Imagine them listening right now. Okay. We start off this big podcast talking about haircuts, not yes. the most exciting topic. So right. if they're still listening at this point, they want us to reveal something about us. I'm not, I'm not, I'm just not. We can lose why? we can lose them. I brought it up because it's not about what we pay. It's about even when we don't like how we're how our haircut looks, we still stay with people because we feel an affinity to them. And so I've recently, not recently, but for the last few years, 
I've been paying more for my haircut, so it'll look better. But you don't think I did very well here. How much? Well, like listen, 35, listen 35, enough, enough, enough of this about the uh, barbers. And I want to no, tell you. I'm staying on it. I, okay, no, you stay no, on governor, it. But I want to no, talk about no, a, t- no, a tweet no, I did no, yesterday. Governor, no, no, no. I'm staying on this. We're doubling down. If, if, if You know what? If you're a fan, now those seven people, we're down to five. If yeah, you're still listening, right. we're going to find something in this, okay? Here's what I found interesting about the conversation that we're having before this, where we were talking about our haircuts. It was just benign small talk. You had mentioned that you had longer hair. I asked when. You said maybe down to your shoulders around college time. And then I asked the question, who is your style icon? Who are you hoping to look like? Which I come from an assumption where I think at that point in our lives, most people see an image of themselves reflected in popular culture, and they're asking to to join that when they're going to a, to a barbershop. And you said there was nobody you ever tried to. No, I never even and thought I of call it that BS. way. I think that's no, BS. I know, I know, I know there's nobody I was like having my hair look like somebody else's hair. It's just that I wore, we wore longer hair in those days. You Who know, did now, you find? Then it. Then it went out, and now it's kind of back in. It probably goes back and forth. I like wearing my hair shorter for two reasons. One, it's easier to take care of. And most people say, you look younger. And anything I can do to look younger, I'm going for that. That's absolutely. This is I what mean, I'm curious about. You're younger, though. Your college years. What, what, was your, what was your idealized version of male beauty at that time? Who did you see as somebody who was idyllic in the male sense? I never thought about it that way. I, I I invite you to indulge. Okay, well, I I didn't think about it that way. There, you didn't I just, know, there it was had just, to be somebody in popular There culture. just like, wasn't. There wasn't, was, Jordan. I didn't. No. I was. I walked a lonely road. I walked my own road. <laughs> Don't believe okay? this. I think this is stunted. Look, I didn't do. I didn't do line dancing. I didn't have posters on my wall. I didn't do any of that. I've just done what I've always done. I'm my own guy, Governor. I'm inviting you for a moment of self reflection. I think. <laughs> Perhaps it was not it was not cool at the time to talk about seeing other men and not in a sexual nature, but in a nature of like you understand that what they're presenting to the world. Well, who, is I mean, you're asking me, who do I think was cool back then? I who thought was, David. I thought Bowie was cool. Okay, I thought the well, Beatles were cool, but I didn't wear my hair like I wanted to look like. Although people say you have your you, you look like a beetle in your haircut. But that's not why I did that. I mean, I just I just didn't pay much attention to it. I didn't pay much attention to anything other than being in school, trying to have a good time, get my grades, get into law school and, you know, kind of hang out. That's that's what I was doing when I was a student. And I had a great time, a great time. There's still a part of you, though, that was was would see other people and and want to project the image of whether it's of confidence whether of it's of sexiness whether it's of arrogance that you would see and Jordan, that's what you were aiming Jordan or, let me just tell you when i was 25 years old i started running for the state senate i was elected at the age of 26 i wasn't looking around figuring out what somebody else did i did what i wanted to do that's the way i've always been so there's not like I was trying to imitate somebody. There are people that I saw that impressed me. I remember seeing Jerry Brown one time make a speech, and uh, he made this really weird speech, and people clapped, and he said, that's all I got to say, and he just left. I mean, it's, it was so unusual. I can remember seeing this guy, McCloskey. He was a congressman from uh, California. He fought the Vietnam War, and and I when I met him, he looked— he looked so much older. He had lots of wrinkles. And then I realized they have this thing called makeup. I mean, I didn't really sit around thinking about that kind of stuff. Um, do you see that's that just as, not where I lived. Now, do you see a person who does? Do you see that as a form of weakness? Or 
because I will tell you this, I think it's it's a vulnerable thing to admit that you you do look at somebody and you may attempt to emulate them. I think as human beings, we naturally we emulate those that we look up to. Uh, yeah. we, we, we try to walk a mile in someone else's shoes to see if they are the right shoes for us. We may discard them. I, for one, both image-wise, politics-wise, <laughs> thought-wise, have often looked at other people and maybe attempted to emulate. Uh, I mean, who couldn't watch Seven by David Fincher and see Brad Pitt and not try to attempt the hairstyle that Brad Pitt's right. having? That's it's just, just a given. You are definitely... look. You're also of a younger generation. This is not where. Let me tell you who. What really impressed me when you I was younger. Beatles. I honestly, I no, no, I, think, I, I, I wasn't even something in there. No, I think let, there's let something me, in there. Let, let me be, go let's on. Be, let's let me be go. honest. <laughs> Jordan, you, you said you said that you can't take the way you look at things and way you look at life and apply it to me. Well, how you know, else am I going to do it? How else people, am I going to go through life? The people That's that impressed me basically were people who had achieved things. One of the greatest and most exciting meetings I ever no. had, I just want to tell you, was a guy who wrote a book called uh, The Art of the Impossible. His name was Vaclav Havel. I was really impressed with that guy. I didn't want to look like him. I didn't want to smoke cigarettes like him. I just thought he was really good, really Gov really a cool guy. But I'm not imitating him. I mean, Governor, I don't try to imitate I, I, people. I will give you this, but I think- Maybe I should grow my hair and try to imitate your hair a little bit. I think that would help. I'm telling you this. I think this is the politician talk that I understand. Yes, you had an image of somebody by the things that they achieved, yada, yada, yada. I could read it in your book. Every politician's got it. What I'm saying is- Jordan, I'm not a it's, politician. It's, I'm sorry. A, I don't do, I'm not in politics you for ran, quite a you while. Ran, you ran for office at 25. I, you I know, a politician. But, but, but are you a politician? No, I'm a I'm a vulnerable man who's still trying to look like okay. Brad Pitt. All right, good. Well, you <laughs> you failed. Okay. Oh, see. No, let me tell. Let, let me get. Let me get to. Let me get to another subject. Let me get to another. Listen, man, I've admitted a lot of vulnerability on this show and the low times in my life, but that's not what we're we're talking bucks. about here with the bar. Forty five bucks. Here's, America. here's okay. If that's what you want, you, you can have it. You're sold. <laughs> okay, but here's what I did want to tell you because there's something that made my blood boil, and I. I tweeted about it, and and it, it revolves around not so much January 6th and the hearings, but it, it revolves around something else. And there have been two particularly brave women, uh, Matthews and Hutchinson, two of them, and um, they have been the subject of really vicious, vicious attacks. Um, people saying they're, they're, there's something wrong with them, or they're liars, and you know, it just it kind of shocked me. And and they have been singled out really almost more than anybody else. And people pounding on them. And when I think about these these ladies, they had their their time in the sun. Uh, over time, you know, they're going to be they're going to be kind of stuck with this, which means they may have made a sacrifice. And and yet, what they get for it is beaten up by a bunch of people who hide in the shadows, um, sleazy operators who decide they want to demean these women. And it's, it's disgusting to me. I mean, these are, these are people that, you know, they stuck their necks out. And, and rather than being hammered, maybe we should learn a little something for them, which is at times, sometimes you have to do some things that, um, that may cost you they, and can cost you. Uh, but it's worth it. And I'm sure the two of them feel as though what they've done has been worth it, but they need to have some support. 
look, I've been through it most of my political career, you know, being hammered by people. Uh, and, uh, you know, for me, it's it hasn't bothered me really virtually at all, maybe a little bit here and there, but not much. But these are young women. These are young women. And you got to get used to the beatings, right? I mean, it's not something you just you just accept. It's something that you that you learn how to get tougher. And what I mean by that is in the early days, I would have been more sensitive to criticism. Uh, but, you know, you have to understand what it was like when I didn't go to the Republican convention in my own state, when I didn't support Trump. I had people yelling and screaming. It didn't really bother me very much. But I've been in this business long enough to know you got to have a thick hide. But these two women being singled out and beaten up, to me, is just, uh, it's it's disgusting. And I wouldn't care if they were liberal Democrats testifying in a, you know, in a Clinton impeachment or whatever, just no respect being shown to them. And it's just, it's infuriating. I mean, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think it's, it's hard not to look at that and see one overall, I think anybody who puts their neck out there and, um, criticizes what happened on January 6th is getting beaten up by, um, uh, far right media and a lot of the folks on that side, uh, but it's hard not to see that it's disproportionate the uh, amount of vigor that's aimed at at the uh, the women who come up. And yes, stand. exactly it's, right. It's exactly right. And you know these other people, we don't hear too much about them. Uh, but with these two, it's just it's just. I wish someday I can meet them and I could thank them for having the courage of their convictions. And it's not, you know, it's just not related to this situation and these people, it's just you, for anybody that needs to take, sometimes you got to take a hit. And when you take a hit, if you're not what, used what to you it, you got to have that? somebody I around to support. That's oh, where, I mean, of course they were going to be criticized. You knew they were going to be ostracized because they did this, you know? And in that case, we need to have people around them who's, who encourage them, who say, hey, you know, um, I I respect and admire what you did. You don't even have to agree with it to be able to, to have some admiration because what they were doing was telling a story of what they had witnessed and, um, you know, and yet they get hammered for it. It's, do, it's very do you tough. Think, let me ask you a question. Do you think the, the modern Republican party is, is, uh, is missing an opportunity or is going to lose out on, on, on women if they aren't more inviting towards women who show, uh, a, a small amount of criticism towards, uh, people who are, um, from that administration, like I, I see this right here, and I, I I've been watching videos too of what happened at Turning Point, and you know, folks in the far right, which we've talked about, the Matt Gateses and what have you, who have talked about what's happening uh, uh, with Roe, and and just saying horrendous stuff about uh, uh, you know misogynist things from this stage and getting applauded, and then you have women who served a Republican president uh, who are under oath, looking to put the country first, and they're also getting dragged by right-wing media and folks in higher-ups in, in right-wing offices. Is the is the GOP going to have a hard time attracting women to its base? Uh, it's always a concern, either party. I mean, it's like asking you, you know, the, the things that have been said about Hispanics and Democrats don't get, are, are losing dramatic support among Hispanics. I mean, you know, are you, should you be concerned about it? Should you be concerned about losing African-Americans? Should Republicans be concerned about losing women? The answer to that is, yeah, of course they should be concerned about it. But any anybody, no matter who you are in public life, you know, you kind of have people that have supported you, and then all of a sudden you start losing them, you get concerned about it. But that doesn't mean 
you know, I remember when I voted for the assault weapons ban, I, there were people just furious with me in the party. But I mean, it doesn't mean I'm going to change. And at some point, they're probably going to get over it. And But I think that uh, on any of these issues, um, I think you just have to be mindful of the kind of reaction you get. Doesn't mean you have to change, but you certainly have to be mindful of it. See, that's the problem with being isolated. When you're isolated and people don't tell you the truth, then you can lose your way. You have to have people around you, not just in politics, but in anything, in business. I'd like to know who's telling Elon Musk about how he's behaving lately, you know? I mean, you have to have people that can tell you the truth. And if you don't hear the truth, you can get lost no matter what you're doing. Politics, business, sports, whatever it is. Although, but I think this can also boil down to the fact these women are getting unfairly attacked. But it it has less to do with them seeking out counsel or uh, understanding what to do beyond that. I think, quite frankly, they saw their government jobs as a duty and they took an oath and were asked questions under oath uh, in in risk of perjury and answered those things honestly. Like at some point, it, it doesn't involve an ecosystem around it. And I think that's what's so infuriating is there's so many people who are lobbing darts at these women who won't go in front of a judge in front of uh, take an oath and or say they something. take or, or the people that are lobbying these attacks on them, they they hide in anonymity they have covers so that they never come out and really uh, expose themselves because then they don't want to be subject to attacks. Mm-hmm. And that is even, look, you know, in in anything, there are people, I'm sure with our guest today, that when he does things in acting or whatever and somebody doesn't like it, somebody can anonymously attack him. I mean, they can anonymously attack you. I've always said, if you want to attack me, well, then just, you know, be a grown up and let me know who you are. Don't hide and slink around in the shadows and and try to avoid uh, people knowing who you are. And so, you know, when I, I can't stand this, these an- anonymous quotes, you know, s- people said in the administration, well, we don't know who they are. They, they mm-hmm. won't reveal themselves. And it's it's across the board. I feel it's this a, day and age. It's a fact of day- life. It's always been this way, but it's. I see it more, maybe. I mean, I think transparency is a virtue more than it ever has been. Would you agree with that? Yes. So how much did you pay for your haircut? No, I'm not revealing. I'm, I'm going to violate the transparency. <laughs> I, I already, you, already, you already said $45. I'll go with that. <laughs> You'll go with that. We'll be right back. And now back to the show. All right. We need to talk. We have a great guest here, and we've, we've just been BSing here. I so mean, Really? This, this, uh, honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about our guest today. Uh, from the Shire to the Island, this week's guest has played a major part in bringing your favorite series to life. He's appeared in movies, on TV, and video games. He's also an animal lover, uh, a star of a brand new Audible original series, Moriarty, The Devil's Game. And it's an absolute pleasure to welcome Dominic Monahan to the podcast. Dominic, how are you? How's it going, guys? I think I might want to talk haircuts for a second, if that's all right. I, I mean, I got to say, I'm looking at you right now. It's a good looking haircut. Oh, Do you, thanks, sh- are you monogamous with your, uh, with your barber? And uh, if you don't mind me asking, would you mind sharing how much is appropriate to pay for a good haircut? Yes, but I think everyone's completely uh, free to decide whether or not they want to divulge that information. I absolutely will. Um, I am monogamous to my uh, hairdresser simply because about 10 years ago, he was cutting David Beckham's hair and David Beckham is a style icon who has always had pretty incredible hair. He played for <laughs> Manchester United 
Uh, I come from Manchester and there's two things about coming from Manchester that's super important. One is having a really good anorak and one is having a relatively good haircut as a man. Um, so I found out that this guy was cutting David Beckham's hair, got a chance to have my hair cut by him. And he's been cutting my hair ever since. What's inter interesting about my relationship with my hairdresser, who has been cutting my hair for probably 12, 15 years now, is it's never the same haircut. I'm <laughs> always getting different haircuts. Yeah. So it's, it's slightly different from John in terms of like, you find a style that you like and you stick to it. I'm always just like, let's do something. Let's change the color. Let's change the style. Let's play around with it. Um, without coloring it, I think I'm probably paying 85. Okay. Coloring it, I think it's probably pushing close to like 130, 140, but I'm leaving him a big tip. So my dad was mortified when I told him that. My dad... My dad does pay eight pounds for a haircut in England, uh, but he doesn't have that much hair, you know, so. <laughs> that's, I think that's a fair, my, my wife has, we've had this, I've had this conversation with my wife who, you know, oh, 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 women's haircut, uh, you add coloring into it, you could be pushing half a grand there, but yeah. I know even you take that away, you at least got a couple hundred. I think yeah. mine, mine bumped up, mine was in the 45 range for a while and then bumped to the 85 but mm -hmm. I've had I've been getting the same haircut for the last decade, so it's been very yeah. simple and clean. And so I jumped I jumped to the forty five to see if they could pull it off, uh, and they did okay. In the end, it's uh, keep it long on top, short on the sides. I yeah. get nervous. I get nervous. I, I once walked into a barbershop uh, about a decade ago. It wasn't my barbershop. It was a new one, and it was I think it was seven dollar haircuts. Wow! And I walked in. Um, uh, uh, it, it was, I think it was in a Polish neighborhood and no one spoke English. And I, I, the guy literally pulled a sign off the uh, door that had four haircuts on it with numbers underneath it. And he pointed to one. And I was like, yeah, the three. And Eesh. it wasn't the haircut I wanted, but it was exactly a three. He, he, he nailed it perfectly. And it wow. took, it took like, it took almost an hour, just so methodical to give me oh. the picture of number three. And I respect it. I, 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 I think I tipped him like 50%, which rounded out to nice. about an eight, 850 haircut. Dominic, yes. where is this? Where does your stylist live? In California? Yeah, yeah. I live in California, too. I live in, I right. live in Los Feliz in L.A. And then to just very quickly hit upon the Beatles for a second, because I'm obsessed. And I'm obsessed by Beatles haircuts. Anything about the Beatles, but I can definitely go through Beatles haircuts. Best John Lennon haircut, Don't Let Me Down. Best Ringo Starr haircut, um, I would say Rubber Soul era. Best George Harrison haircut, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. <laughs> Best Paul McCartney haircut, Fool on the Hill. Whoa, okay, I love this. Wait, break it down. What, wait, the Paul haircut, Fool on the Hill. How close so is that? Is, the, the get back, is that get back hair? No, it's a little shorter than get back, um, but you're in the same ballpark. Uh, Fool on the Hill haircut is dark slightly long uh stubble and then he's got a few little tufty bits at the back but he's still got his little boyish mop top it's like he's growing out his mop top and just starting to get that epic mccartney beard but at this point it's stubble then george harrison while my while my guitar gently weeps is kind of classic jesus haircut it's down to the bottom of his neck it's shaggy it's all over his face he's clean shaven uh, John Lennon, Don't Let Me Down, is a little bit less of a tailored Imagine haircut. So, you know, the Imagine kind of bob that he gets. This That's has well just, the Imagine I, yeah, is well the, You know, you guys well are just weirdos talking about this. This is unbelievable. This, this so has I, more hey, Dominic, Dominic yeah. so did you watch Peter Jackson? I mean, you watched the whole Beatles uh, of documentary, right? Wait a minute. Here's a question. Did you watch Peter Jackson's take on the Beatles? Is that something you'd at all be interested in? 
I watched uh, about an hour of Get Back before it came out with Whoa. Peter Jackson, um, which was pretty fun because he and I, uh, you know, I have two Beatles tattoos. And one of the major things that I talked to about uh, with Pete when I was in New Zealand was the Beatles because we're both obsessed. So I was lucky enough to be in New Zealand and he was like, hey, I got something to show you that you really dig. So I got a chance to see that. Paul McCartney, uh, Paul McCartney, Peter Jackson owns all four of the Sergeant Pepper's Beatles costumes from the album cover. Yes. Whoa. What's up? What are you yeah. seeing in the first hour cut? Is that a, is that a, just the Rough. first hour of the, 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 the actual thing that aired or what does he, what does he actually show you? No, it was rough footage. But when I say rough footage, you, you know, you're talking about Peter Jackson, rough, rough footage, which could basically be a movie in its own right, but it was just kind of cobbled together about, you know, 50, 55 minutes of stuff that you wanted to show me. And uh, yeah, I got a huge kick out of it. So let me, let me ask you, both of you guys this. So, you know, you put the two of them, to, you put Lennon and McCartney together and, you know, Harrison was sort of shut out in a way and I think got, yeah. you know, angry about it. And, you know, as they used to say on Saturday Night Live, you could pay Bing, you could pay Ringo a lot less if they'll come on the show. But there's yeah. the thing. I, so you take... Lennon, who I think uh, provided the edge, and you take McCartney, who provided the pop. Mm. And what they did was, well, I mean, it's just unbelievable how successful. Mm. But mm. if you take them separately, um, not so great, right? I mean, mm. I do like uh, uh, still a number of the things, uh, Double Fantasy from Lennon, but mm. I've never been a big pop guy in terms of McCartney, although watching the Peter Jackson, the Beatles documentary... I got a new respect for McCartney and, you know, how he sat at that piano and I can't remember what he banged out, but it was just yeah. amazing to me. What yeah. What do you think about where the Beatles were and then what happened to them when then became individual performers and what do you think about the quality of their work? I mean, I, I'm, I'm a Beatles fanatic, so I'm always going to be biased towards them. I totally agree with you. I think they they are way better when they're together. I would include... George Harrison and certainly uh, Ringo Starr in that argument as well. I like what Lennon did with the Plastic Ono Band. I think there's some amazing things there. He's kind of brimming with all of this solo work that he couldn't get into the Beatles catalog. So he's got, you know, some really amazing stuff. Jealous Guy and Woman and God and Mother. And, you know, uh, he's, he's an extremely talented musician. I like McCartney, his first solo album. I like Ram. I do think that the the great thing about both of those artists is also the thing that you can put up against them as a criticism, which is that McCartney wants to create melodies. He's almost like addicted yeah. to melodies and yeah. he doesn't, he doesn't want to get into too much edge, too much darkness, too much revealing right. of himself. Lennon on the other side, which is why they complement so each other so right. well, like oil and water. Lennon on the other side is like, I don't care if it's a song or not. I'm just going to scream my pain towards you because I need to get it out and it's cathartic. And I think they both benefited from the influence of each other in the same way that Harrison did. I mean, look, Harrison's an incredible musician in his own right. I think, unfortunately, because they met him when he was 14, they thought of him as a 14-year-old kid for almost all of their professional career. This is the guy that wrote you know, while my guitar, while my guitar gently, gently weeps, weeps. He, or he, he here wrote, comes, he wrote you something. know, that there's that story, uh, a guy's a story that uh, Harrison invited um, Clapton to his house. He said, I want you to come uh, early, early before, you know, I'm going to serve you breakfast in my, in my garden. 
but I want you to come while it's still dark. And then as the sun came up, he, he sang to Clapton, uh, here comes the sun. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, that is a, like a mind boggling, I, that, that vision of the two of them sitting there while he sings, here comes the sun is just, yeah, just unbelievable. I, I, what can I you also, say? Uh, well, I wonder if he invited Clapton over a little bit early as well, because then he's hoping that his wife is sleeping because yeah, Clapton exactly, ended up banging right. his wife a, yeah, uh, a few exactly. months later. So you, you, you grew up in Germany and then yeah. jump on over to England. Where, where does the beat, how does, how does, how early does the, the, like, does it, when you move to England, do you have to become a Beatles fan? Do you immediately revolt against the Beatles? Where, where do they implant them, implant themselves on you? Well, my parents are both Mancunians. They're both from Manchester, which is about 20 minutes from Liverpool. So they were extremely influenced by the Beatles growing up and, um, you know, my dad's favorite artist, Leonard Cohen, Bob Dylan, and then, you know, the Beatles. So they were all over us uh, as as kids when we were in Germany. And then obviously when you're in Manchester, you know, they're everywhere. They're, it's almost like they've always been around the Beatles, you know. But I have this distinct memory as a kid driving in my dad's Volvo. Registration plate was VB974B. And uh, he used to play uh, Beatles for sale. And it was on cassette. And I would ask my dad to rewind the moment at the start of Mr. Moonlight, where Lennon sings a cappella on his own. And I was like, what is that? My dad's like, that's John Lennon singing. And I was like, I'll play it again. And my dad was like, do you want to listen to the song? And I'd be like, no, just play the star. So we'd play the star. And I'm kind of obsessive. And I remember my dad kind of saying, you know, you wanted me to do it like 30 times while we were driving because yeah, I couldn't believe the the level of his voice. And there's something about Lennon. I'm I'm like conscious of heroes and and conscious that heroes, you know, let you down. And I'm I'm big on putting people on pedestals, which I think is a bad idea because you know I can't live up to being put on the pedestal by anyone. So why should I expect other people to? But Lennon was always kind of my my hero and continues to be. I did I, my favorite thing about Lennon is that thing we were talking about at the start. He took his pain and turned it into art. And that for me is the most admirable thing that you can do with trauma is create something beautiful out. It's a really how does good, that, excellent How do you point. find, do you find yourself, how do you transition from that into the acting bug? How early did that take hold with you? Um, yeah, I was always kind of artistic, you know, I think like lots of, lots of drawing, lots of painting, lots of singing, lots of, um, impressions when I was a kid. I think I wanted to be an impressionist quite a lot when I was a kid. So I was always doing, you know, my teachers and the Muppets and the Beatles and, you know, anyone who I liked, anyone who I was into. So I I could do voices. And um, then I saw Empire Strikes Back when I was like, hey, something like that. And then the week after I went back to my friend's house and saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I was really confused that clearly Han Solo was also Indiana Jones. So I asked my dad and my dad explained to me, oh, he's an actor. You know, he puts on a costume and he's in space and then he puts on a costume and he's in a, he's in a tomb, you know, and it was like a light bulb moment of me thinking, okay, well, I'll, I'll do that then. <laughs> Dominic, I, um, I got called to do something in a, there was a television movie or series called Graves and it was Nick Nolte oh, yeah. was the, was the star so I go out to New Mexico to film this thing, you know, and they give me this thing to memorize. And so I want to kind of ad lib it. 
and I don't think they were too into that. And then they, you know, tried to tell me what to do. And we, and we, I got done, you know, I had to walk off the set and that was all filmed and all that. And I thought, okay, that's good. They made me do it. I, I swear to you, it was all day long. Yeah. I must have done 50 or 75 cuts. And what, how, how do you, is the thing that always I've thought about since that experience is how do you let your personality shine through? I mean, how how does how do you how are you able to be that character when everything is in such short snippets and they piece it together? Unless I don't understand, I got a bad experience in that Graves show. Uh, I just never felt that I could project me. How does it work when you're doing Lord of the Ring? I mean, Lord of the Rings. You know, how do you yeah. shine through? How do you make you stand out? Um, the first actress I ever worked with when I was eighteen is an actress called Patricia Routledge, a very famous actress from England. She was she became famous for a show called Keeping Up Appearances, worked with Alan Bennett. We did a show for four years together, and she was a very strict but very essential teacher for me. And probably the major teaching that she gave me that I retain to this day is how to conserve your energy when you're working. So you cannot give uh, all yeah. of it, you know, in, in the first take, you have to sustain that energy throughout the whole day. And it is kind of a skill, but as actors, you do get used to it. I mean, geez, Lord of the Rings, we were shooting just principal photography was two years. And uh, if you were to ask any of the four hobbits, you can ma wave a magic wand and you can guarantee that you'll only do one seen in the entire trilogy once you'll do it once we'll nail it and you can move on all four of the hobbits would have said the final scene where bilbo and gandalf and frodo head off to the gray havens and we're all crying our eyes out hysterical we did that three times three days yeah so we did it once sean astin was wearing the wrong waistcoat we had to come back <laughs> we did it the second time and the focus was soft and we did it three times standing hysterically crying. So, uh, yeah, you just get used to conserving your energy. What happens with the waistcoat decision? Does that person lose their job? Is everybody cool about it, but well, not really cool about it? I mean, it, it was, it was kind of Sean Astin. So unfortunately for the last 20 years or so, we've not let him forget it, but basically <laughs> we filmed so that the gray Haven scene is all day. It's a complete, a complete day shoot. If you're lucky. And we were lucky enough to, to get through it in those in those three days. Each each day we finished, we had wrapped the scene. So in the morning, we're getting angles on who knows whom, but certainly featuring Sean Astin, and he's wearing a waistcoat. And when he comes back after lunch, he's forgotten to put his waistcoat on. Uh, and we we shot the rest of the day. And then when they tried to match it, they were like, uh, Sean's not wearing his waistcoat. So we, we remind him of that at least once every time we see him. I was when if when when Cameras go down between takes. Uh, you're still, you still look like a hobbit. You're walking around, but you're angry. Do you feel a responsibility to, to being a hobbit, to not show that anger to other people on set? Did you carry an extra burden off set? Could you be an angry Dominic, but yet project as an angry hobbit around? Like, uh, or were you aware of that walking around? You can't be like a shitty hobbit going to go yeah. get coffee. Yeah, no, I mean, I think we're all, I think the Hobbits, well, I think everyone in that movie is is pretty astutely cast. I think we are all 
um, certainly leaning towards the brighter side of life. Billy Boyd, who I'm the closest to in the entire film, is an extremely positive gentleman. Elijah Wood has always been very positive. I think that the person who struggled the most out of the three of us was Sean Astin. I mean, we were coming in there. I was 24 when I made Lord of the Rings. Elijah was 18. Sean Astin had a daughter at that point. So he had a completely different lifestyle. We're all single men going out having fun. So I think he struggled with being overweight. He struggled with some of the burdens of being Sam. And he struggled with the fact that he didn't wear his waistcoat while we did the Grey Haven seed. And we fucking gave him a hard time for it for like <laughs> 18 months, you know. We'll be right back. And now back to the show. What, 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 Dominic, you've been successful in so many different ways. And it seems like you're, you're pretty loose about it all. You don't seem, you seem like devil, you know. You, you just seem like somebody that's pretty darn relaxed. What do you think that you project that makes you so unique in this in this industry? What what what's the special thing that you do? Do you have to try hard, or are you just you, and it just kind of works? Man, that's a great question. I've never been asked that before, and I really don't know how to answer that. Um, I think that's that's probably would be an easier question for people that have worked with me consistently, or maybe someone on the outside looking in. I mean, I you know, transparently from a practical point of view, I prepare myself as an actor. I always know my lines. I always hit my marks. I always do the best job. I don't, you know, even if, if I have a, you know, if, I, if I'm not feeling well, if I have a head cold or, a, you know, I'm under the weather or whatever, you're not going to see that when I'm working because that's what they pay me for. So I think showing up, hitting your marks, you know, I was listening to a podcast the other day with someone talking about the fact that they were a marathon runner, they were successful in other elements of their life, but they also said, I'm a marathon runner. And they were talking about the idea that as a marathon runner, one of the major things that you have to do is get to the starting line. You have to get there with your sneakers laced up and your shorts on and your little bib on and get ready. And it was a symbol for how he was successful in life. And I think as an actor, there is something to be said for, I'm going to show up. I'm not going to cause a fuss. I'm not going to be late. I'm, I'm, going to get there on time. I'm going to know my lines. I'm going to hit my marks. And then I don't know, really. I don't, I don't know. I've been really lucky. I'm pretty, what's the word? I'm pretty, um, oh, what's the, I mean, there's a word that I'm looking for that attributes to having a drive. I'm, you know, I'm quite ambitious. Um, well, certainly ambitious. I mean, that's, I'm okay with being ambitious, but there's, there's another word that I'm looking for, but you know, I'm like, I'm like a, I'm like a um, a cat with a mouse. I just I do not let stuff go. If I so want to do you're, something, you're in, you have intensity. Yeah, yeah. There's my my agent knows that. Like if I'm if I want to do something, I'm probably going to you're going to do it. You're going to yeah, do I'm it. Probably going to keep going um, until you get it. Yeah, it's I, like I, my I golf game. <laughs> there's something in that. I mean, obviously, there's there's effortless actors out there that I think, you know they they have something a little bit more of what we talked about with that alchemy like you know if you're talking about someone like joaquin phoenix there's 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 such a level of talent in that guy but that that talent is so kind of zany and hard to bottle that i think that's the thing that is attractive to us with joaquin is like this unpredictable slightly edgy you don't know what he's going to do next kind of energy. Philip Seymour Hoffman had it. Gary Oldman certainly had it in his younger days and still has it a little bit now. I just don't think he wants to let that genie out of the bottle that much. I think a lot of that probably had to do with 
alcohol and substances, which, you know, he was a, he was a fan of when he was younger. Um, how you know, about also, Joaquin Phoenix in, in, in Walk the Line? Yeah, I mean, incredible. How, I mean, how, how does he even do that? Yeah, yeah, incredible. I think he's channeling a lot of that. I mean, I know that's another kind of wanky actor word to say, but I think he's kind of, I think he spent a long time during that rehearsal process listening to Cash, reading about Cash, studying Cash. And I think he's just trying to channel him. I think he's just trying to have him kind of run through his system. I mean, Joaquin is a great mimic as well. He can put on voices. He can change his body um, shape and stuff like that. I just think he was uh, channeling him, you know? Now, you you look at uh, the projects you've been a part of. Uh, Just Lord of the Rings, Lost, X-Men Origins, uh, Star Wars. I mean, you must be... I mean, you're... King at Comic Con. I bet you could walk through there, and uh, you 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 must be a god at Comic Con. Uh, I'm curious, being attached to so many, so many things that have a life outside of, uh, or have a lore and a mythology behind them. Uh, we live in a culture right now where people, uh, uh, you, you're the, you're the kind of person who has uh, action figures made of you. You have there's mythology based around characters and worlds that you're in. Uh, both emotionally, what do you carry with you? Also, literally, what do you keep? Are you somebody who keeps things from each movie, each project you're a part of? Do you do you often find yourself looking back, or is that something you like to like to let go? Yeah, it's funny, man. I, I don't even think I've got started yet. Honestly, I really don't. I have that mindset all the time. People, you know, will say, "Oh, you've done this, you've done that," and I, I just think. I've not even started yet. You know, I've really not got going yet. That's that's stop. Been my, stop. No, I, 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 that, you, that, save honestly, save some IP for the rest of us. For that's, God's sake, Dominic. That's not a humble brag or, or me looking for anything in particular from you guys. That's that might be a that might be a worthwhile headspace for me to maintain. It might it might just be helpful for me. But you know, I'm always like, okay, great, I've done that. I'd like to go on a run. I'd like to have you know, four or five movies come out a year. I'd like to raise myself up to the level of, of the actors that I admire. So I, I, there's still a huge amount of, of work for me to do. I was just recently in Comic-Con for this Moriarty uh, podcast, which hopefully we talk about uh, at some point. I, um, uh, you know, I, yeah, I keep some stuff. I keep some stuff. There's a lot of stuff in storage now because I think some of it has some level of value. So, you know, I have obviously when we wrapped Lord of the Rings, you know, I was given my clapperboard, I was given my sword, I was given my armor, all that's in storage. I have my ring from Drive Shaft, I have my hoodie from Drive Shaft, because when I put up my hoodie when uh in Lost, sorry, in Drive Shaft, when um when I put up my hoodie when I'm in Lost, that means I've turned into like the bad version of me. Um a lot of that I think is like probably for like a looking back when I'm older thing. I've not watched Lord of the Rings for probably 18 years or so. I never watched Lost. I've not seen Star Wars. I didn't see X-Men. I just don't really watch my stuff. I'm on set. I do it. I spend all day doing it. I give 100% of my personality to be there on that day. I can tell you what takes they chose. I can tell you what angles they pick. I can tell you what happened on the day. I did it. I did it 100%. I don't need to do it again. I get asked that question all the time on Instagram. Why don't you watch Lord of the Rings? Why don't you watch it every Christmas? I'm a fucking hobbit. I lived in Middle Earth. I don't need to go back. It's in. It lives in my brain, rent free. It's there all the time. I did it. It's done. That's uh, huh. what you know. You know, this it's an interesting question, Dominic. You know, watching oneself. You know, like when I do a speech or do television, 
I really don't want to watch myself. And I, I think part of it is, to speak about vulnerability, I think if I watch myself, I'm going to think I'm not doing very well, to be honest with you. I don't think it's going to be like, God, I really did well. I think it's always like, no, I could have done this better, or I could have said that better. Is there an element of that in this as well as you're not wanting to go back and watch? Yeah, that's that's the artistic thing. Because, you know, television, television is art. Politics, speaking is art, right? Oh, for sure. It's making for sure. speeches. You know, it's telling somebody the other day, I was asking this guy, how does how does music come to you? He said, well, when I write a song, it just, it kind of comes to me. He said, well, what about when you do speeches? I said, I cannot sit down and force anything. If I'm going to go talk somewhere, it has to kind of come to me. I can't sure. make it come any faster, you know, so like I did eight state of the state addresses, you know, that's a big deal when you do a state, it's like the state of the union, except for your state. And I took it all around the state, around Ohio, which no one had ever done. But when it came to, okay, what are you going to talk about? I couldn't tell anybody what I was going to talk about until it came to me as to what I should talk about. Is it, you know, that's, I think it's, it's, and so that makes it sort of an art, I think. Yeah, yeah, so, certainly in art, the art speaking. I mean, because a lot of people just cannot do it. They they just think it's just talking, like most of us all talk. But it's not. It, it is an art giving a speech, you know. But uh, I was, um, yeah, I was. I was recently did. I write a, my a, own. I, nobody's ever written a speech for me. You know, I oh, do yes. my own stuff. Sure. Um, I did this show called Moonhaven in Ireland last year. It's on AMC Plus now, and it's a lovely show, uh, lovely cast, lovely crew. I play this kind of naive police officer uh, on the moon. It's a very sweet role. I had a great time doing it. Love the project in Dublin, Ireland. I have family all over Ireland. I had a really great time. A great day on set where I thought, you know, I'm in every scene. I feel like I've smashed every scene. I've done as good as I can do. A great day on set. I'm probably 60% happy. If I watch it, it drops down to 30%. Happy. Mm. So there's no reason for me to watch it. It doesn't, it doesn't benefit me at all to watch it. It makes everything worse. So I just did it. Leave <laughs> it alone. Right, right. I'm right. That's exactly right. Yeah. 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 You're, you're moving into the podcast field as well with mm. uh, Friendship Onion, with yeah. your, your cohort, Billy Boyd, and mm. also this project, Moriarty. What, what, are, you, what are you finding venturing into uh, this, this field? And what is it about? both podcasting and, and the medium acting as a character as you do in Moriarty, but, and also as yourself uh, in Friendship Onion? Uh, well, I think the, the challenging, maddening thing about doing the Friendship Onion, which, as you said, is just myself and Billy Boyd sat around talking nonsense, is you have to be constantly building and growing an audience. And if you're not growing that audience, then the company that you work with and the sponsors that you have just kind of fall off. So everything needs to be growing, expanding, which, you know, is a little frustrating, the the strong business side of it, because I just like hanging out with Billy and, and we like making the show. But, you know, that's something that we will uh, continue to do, uh, hopefully all the time while it makes sense. And then with Moriarty, which is completely different, you know, it's a it's a fictional podcast. I was I was kind of discover I was I was in development with this um, fantastic uh, production company called Tree Four Media. We were thinking about trying to make a show about. We've heard of them, Jordan. Uh, yes. I have heard of that. I, yes. Barely. Yes. Yes. Uh, so I was exploring the idea of potentially making a show about football or 
Soccer ball, as you guys call it over here. Now I understand. Soccer that ball. makes sense. Okay, Soccer I get it. Ball. Continue. Yes, because I'm, I'm a, that's one of the other things that I'm obsessed about. And we were, we were thinking about that, thinking about a TV show. Was it a series of specials? Could it, uh, could it be a podcast? It was in development. We weren't really sure where it was going. And it ended up kind of just fizzling out a little bit. And then at that point, we, we were just thinking, well, what else can we do? And the, the world of Sherlock Holmes is, is so full of so many charismatic characters. But I think we all hit upon this idea that arguably, alongside Sherlock Holmes, the most charismatic character is his arch nemesis, Moriarty, who is as intelligent, maybe even more so sometimes, certainly more devious. He has as many demons. He's um, extremely well-learned. And we just thought, well, where's that show? Why are we not looking at the world of these characters that Arthur Conan Doyle created, but looking at it through an extremely charismatic character? So that's where uh, Moriarty came from. And uh, it's been really fun. And we got Billy Boyd in that too. So woohoo, everyone is it freeing as an actor to perform uh, in something like that, like a, a narrative uh, podcast, essentially a radio play, like back in the old days? Do you find that fun to to be able to go into booth and and just create using your voice? It is, yeah. People always talk about this kind of cliche thing of you can go in in your pajamas, but anyone who fucking shows up at work in their pajamas is a lunatic. So, like, <laughs> please don't please don't do that. Um, so the idea that you can show up in your pajamas is, is nice in theory, but uh, I don't think it's good in practice. Uh, yeah, it's, it's great. I mean, I've known Billy for over 20 years. We, we know how we're going to be in the morning. We know what makes each other's laugh, each other laugh. We know how to raise each other's vibration or mood if we need to. And there's no, there's no getting to know you shorthand, which can sometimes, you know, drain a little bit of your energy. So Billy and I got, got the opportunity to do all of our scenes together. Um, it was super fun. And I'm charmed by that world. I grew up with the Zemeckis film, The Young Sherlock Holmes. I grew up with Peter Cook and Dudley Moore's Hound of the Baskervilles. I know of the, the Rathbone uh, version of Sherlock Holmes. And I think that, you know, obviously Cumberbatch and, and people are. In fact, I was at a party, a BAFTA party uh, on my own. And kind of thinking, I'm going to hang around here for 15 minutes, show my face and leave because I was promoting my nature show. And from the other side of the room, Cumberbatch came over to me and he was like, hey, you know, you're such a, you know, follower from what you do, whatever. And I'm over here working with Peter Jackson in New Zealand. We'd love uh, to like say hello to you, Martin Freeman. And I, and I was like, oh, great. I mean, of course, I love Benedict Cumberbatch's work. work. I love uh, Martin Freeman as well. So then I spent an hour uh you know, drinking gin and tonics with uh, Sherlock and Watson, which was just a wonderful time. <laughs> Did they find themselves kind of falling into those character archetypes as well? Did you find yourself becoming Moriarty over these GNTs? Um, no, because Moriarty was a long way away at that point. It was still a few years away. What, what, I, what we did Dom, do... This is good for promos. Wrap it into the mythology. Well, Dom, yeah, no, I it definitely yeah. did. Definitely did. <laughs> Definitely just I'm not scene. sure that we're experts on promo, though, Jordan. I mean, <laughs> so, uh, I, I became Moriarty and Sherlock and Watson were kind of uh, investigating. No, more than anything else, honestly, those guys were heading over to New Zealand and they were grilling me on, you know, where they should stay, where they should eat, what they should do, what you, what you don't do in New Zealand, what you should do in New Zealand, any, you know, any kind of inside scoop on, on the experience. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was a wonderful afternoon. So, so Dominic, Perhaps that's look. the thing that's under when it comes to the world in the entertainment industry is that when people get together and share notes, it's it's not always about performance or how to execute. Often it's about like, what are good places to hang out in that town? Are there good hotels? Uh, yeah. Basically, you become like a 
Travelocity, but for your other uh, uh, yeah. friends in the entertainment industry. Yeah, and I'm inclined to lovies. I don't know if you guys know what a lovey is. It's kind of a, a British uh, colloquial term for an actor that likes to live in the actor world. I was talking with Billy the other night about, I've never met Martin Short, but I'm completely charmed by Mark, Martin Short, and I just think he's an incredible person. And I get the feeling that he would be a really amazing lovey. I think you'd sit down with him, He'd regale you about stories of actors and theaters and projects and filmmakers. And he'd be so charismatic and so cool. So a lot of times when actors get together, you do the whole go to this restaurant and do this thing. And then you talk about, you know, have you acted in this play? Do you know this person? Do you know this artistic director? You know, like everyone's trying to like find common ground. And that, that lovely conversation is extremely charming. Now, Dominic, let's get down to something very, very serious here. And that is... Okay. World Cup. Yeah. Now, I want to know now, and you you don't have to answer this question, just like I wouldn't talk about what it costs to get a haircut. So we're in the same section. Great Britain, the United States. Yes. We're in the same yeah. section in World Cup. And, and okay, Iran we get, is in our group as well, right? Well, we're gonna, that, we'll take care of them quickly. Please go you know, we'll, yes. we'll just put sanctions on them and, uh, yeah. you know, whatever. <laughs> so if we get there down to the finals... Who are you going for? Well, you've got no chance, so I'm obviously going to go for the winners. Um, what, what, no, what? What do you mean? What? What are you talking about? Did level, you just see what happened in the World uh, Championship track and field? The United States just kicked butt. Hey, listen, you guys in the Olympics, you guys in the, in uh, any kind of you know big athletics thing like that, you obviously slay. Well, what do you think like World Russia. Cup is? You, we've learned from you how important and big it is. You know, I watch it. It's interesting. So what do you Cup, think? You th the, the World Cup is the most watched sporting competition I know, in the in world. The, world. Uh, the standard of MLS, if you, were, if you were to compare it to the Premier League, which, which is the best league on the planet, is probably about three leagues below Premier oh, League. that that's is just, just cheap, hey, listen, Dominic. Just, I mean, we just, just got a guy from the Premier League over here in Columbus playing for yeah. the crew. He's, yeah, he's, he's, he's kicking, he's scoring a goal every single game. I mean, you know, he decided to come where the, you know, the grass was greener and better. No, no I'm not just went, kidding you. To, so you think, you really think that... where the game is easier and the money is bigger. That's that's how that works. Um, you you guys, look, in, in the Premier League right now, you've got Kristen Pulisic, who is an American international. Yes. He's a, he's a decent player. He plays for Chelsea. He's decent. He's not the best player on the Chelsea team. He's probably the seventh or eighth best player on the Chelsea team. And that is the best American player in the history of soccer in my country. He's the best. He's better than Landon Donovan. He's better than uh, Alexi Lawless or whoever else you want to mention. Christian Pulisic is your best ever player. Now, listen, if we what? were to come and play in the NBA or in the NFL, we would get absolutely smoked. You'd have no English players in the NBA or the um, NFL. But don't mess with us when we're talking about football. We will destroy you guys. <laughs> what, about, you. what about Los Angeles resident David Beckham? I mean, he was a pretty good player back in the day. As, as an American, as a Los Angeles resident, as a, as a person who lived in New York, I believe, for some times. I mean, you have to give America some credit for, even if we don't birth soccer players, we steal them really well. As an ambassador for the sport and for what he did for the, uh, the awareness of soccer in this country, he was worth the $250 million that he was paid to play five seasons at the end of his career. But if you want to talk about when David Beckham was good, we turned him into a star at Manchester United, and then he went and had an amazing career at Real Madrid. By the time he came to 
the Galaxy, he'd already played for Milan and his knees and his ankles were shot and he was probably 50% as good as he used to be. But uh, David Beckham's an icon. He's an icon. He's a legend. Well, what about Messi? You know, everybody raves uh, about Messi, but, but, but oh, you don't like Messi because, you know, I they say, Messi. oh, they built the team around him. And now that he's switched teams, he's not quite as good. Isn't that correct? That is correct. The interesting thing with Messi is he's one of these one man play, uh, one team players. And I think, to, to be honest, he kind of got his heart broken when he left Barcelona. And I think that verve, that, that extra little thing that you need to push it over to the next level has slightly died with Messi. What you're talking about at this high level of yeah. elite sports, kind of lost his edge a little Neymar, bit. Ronaldo, yeah. Yeah. Mbappe, Neymar, Lewandowski, Messi, the people that are at the very top of their game, they're all exceptional athletes. And it's the tiny little things that help them get to the next level. And Messi just doesn't really want it as much as he wanted it at Barcelona. But for my money, the greatest player in the history of sport, Lionel Messi. Whoa. Yeah. That's I mean, some who's statement. Better? Who's better? Now, that, that's wait, are we, you, that's this is British. He's playing. a lovey, is, huh? Is, He's is a lovey. Sport mean all sports or using sport in terms of the sport of soccer slash football with a U? How are you using well, sport there? Are you saying I, athlete, I, period? I think he's undoubtedly the greatest soccer player of all time. Um, the only things that are missing are a couple of key things like winning a Pele. World Cup, which everyone, yeah, everyone Pele. goes on about Pele winning the World Cup. Pele is an amazing player. He won two World Cups and kind of put the team on his back. Yeah. If you were to bring Pele into the modern world, I don't think he would be able to do what Messi did. He definitely didn't score as many goals as Messi scored or will end up scoring as many goals as Messi scored in his career. He didn't assist. He wasn't as two-footed as Messi. Uh, he's not as versatile as Messi. But certainly in the conversation, Maradona, Johan Cruyff, Pele, uh, George but, Best, maybe. But, but Dominic, this is like the age-old debate in sports. You know, how would Gretzky be today in hockey, or right, how right. would how would Babe Ruth be? Or you know, I mean, the fact is that they were so great for their time, and things yeah. change. Training changes, everything changes. Oh, sure. So it's pretty hard to say. You're just saying he's the goat, as far as you're concerned. And I, uh, I absolutely agree. Sense, yeah, you have to. Yeah. You have to take. You have to t- take people on the merits of you know the history that they were living in and. Pele was extraordinary in his time, and and it is difficult to like bring them all together. But if you if we were to have a magical football pitch where we could bring all players in history together and play a game, okay, for, that's for good, my money, good point. Me, me, Messi is uh, winning that all game. Right, I'm, he, you may have convinced good. me, Jordan. We can't let him go until he. T- I I don't understand this whole thing about snakes and spiders and all this. Oh. So you actually like hanging around with these poisonous reptiles and insects mm. i mean you can't what why mm. yeah i have unfortunately my lizard's sleeping otherwise i would i would show you uh my lizard she she had uh four mice yesterday and she's absolutely wiped out um <laughs> and i have a, I have a tarantula as well and some prey mantis and some scorpions um i'm interested in venom i've always been interested in venom so a lot of the animals that i'm the most interested in are the venomous ones. So certainly like insects that have stings, hymenoptria, which is like wasps, bees, and ants. I'm very interested in those. I always have been as a kid. Venom is essentially like an adapted saliva and that in an evolutionary kind of journey has always just been fascinating to me. I'm also- and What about rattlesnakes? And what about, you know- Yeah, I, I rehabilitate rattlesnakes. And, yeah. yeah, I rehabilitate rattlesnakes and put them back into the Palm Desert. I had two last year. 
Um, beautiful animals, very misunderstood. Uh, the thing that I'm probably the most passionate about in terms of animals is, you know, I wouldn't necessarily describe myself as a religious person, but my spiritual practice is one of uh, nature. I have a relationship with nature that kind of fulfills those things that a lot of people maybe find at church or in places of worship. For me, that's nature. So I'm always trying to raise awareness to people that maybe don't have a connection to nature, that all animals are kind of the same. If you just approach mm. them in a respectful way, sure. then they'll be respectful too. You know, it's not a selective group being an animal lover. If you love dogs and cats and horses and, and, and uh, rabbits, then you also need to love leeches and mosquitoes and fleas and bats. That's how it goes. Otherwise, don't call yourself an animal lover. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Well, Dominic, I will tell you, it has been a delight. I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to say, for our podcast, you are definitely in the top five Venom experts we've had on this show. <laughs> well, that's good. Very, very not impressive. Not a bad actor either. You know, and not, not a bad actor either. Not bad. I hope he catches a break sometime soon. You know, yeah, I do. Uh, <laughs> well, you can hear Dominic and Moriarty, The Devil's Game on Audible, and listen and subscribe to The Friendship Onion with Dominic and Billy Boyd wherever you get your podcast. Dominic, thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure, guys. Thanks a lot. Hey everybody, Jordan here, uh, your favorite host of the Kasich Klepper podcast. Thank you for listening this far. If you like what you hear, click like or thumbs up or whatever icon signifies a positive reaction. We love your ratings. We love your thoughts. Reach out to us on social media. Let us know what you want us to talk about because I'm tired of answering the governor's questions and I just prefer to answer yours. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Kasich and Klepper is a production of Treefort Media, hosted and executive produced by John Kasich and Jordan Klepper. Treefort Media's executive producers are Kelly Garner, Lisa Ammerman, and Matthew Kugler. Line producer is Oscar Guido. Associate producer, Lee Albanese. Audio direction by Tom Monahan, head of audio for Treefort. With production and editing by Maxwell Carney. Sound editing by Abigail Sullivan. Talent booking by Blythe Asher. With additional production help from Tim Schauer, Haley Mandelberg, Lindsay Whistler, Colin Motel, and Anastasia Ibrahim. This podcast is powered by ACAST.